You are listening to Wind Bands of Every Flavor, a podcast for directors and musicians dedicated to concert, marching, and jazz bands throughout the world. And now, your host, Chad Nicholson. Thanks for downloading episode 9 of Wind Bands of Every Flavor. This is your host, Chad Nicholson, coming to you from sunny and warm Indiana, where I know that it is within four or five weeks of school starting because I can hear the marching bands out hitting the pavement already. Uh, It seems like we just finished up the year uh, just a few weeks ago, and yet there they are. They're excited. I'm seeing some really excited uh, high school students out there ready to tear up the fall season, and that's always fun to to get things kicked off with a lot of energy and and to see the directors invigorated. Uh, It always gets me going as well, and and, uh, as a former high school band director, I've been down that path, and, and it's really fun for me. Uh, a lot of them let me get involved and, and, and holler at the kids a little bit over the Long Ranger, and, uh, and it's still there, man. I can still, I can still snap them to attention, uh, so I know I've, it's still back there somewhere. So uh, it's a great, great time of year to, to relax and to take some time to reflect on, on all the things that we do throughout the rest of the year, and we'll be doing that today in the podcast. The first thing we'll be looking at, though, is an interview with our good friend Matthew Arau, staff member of the American Band College to report out on what exciting things happen out there in their annual three-week uh, event in Oregon. And then we'll be moving on to a little visit to the Core Repertoire Corner to talk about Aaron Copeland's Emblems, which is a great piece for band. And we'll finish up the podcast with the second half of our interview with composer Kevin Walchick, where he's going to be talking about a really great story of of how he he had the commission for uh, uh, the Midwest Clinic from Ray Kramer, how that came about. It's a great story. He also touches on some things like uh, um, a possible identity crisis with the band and and he talks about things like renting a piece versus purchasing a piece and the impact that has on composers and on band directors and on band budgets. It's a great interview and then we'll finish out the podcast by sampling some of uh, Professor Waldchick's music. It's really fine music and and I think you're going to enjoy this program quite a bit. Remember to visit the online home of Wind Bands of Every Flavor at chadnicholson.wordpress.com. And you can always track me down at windbands at gmail.com or head over to uh, find me at Twitter, Facebook. All of that information is on the blog website as well as links about the things that we talk about in today's show and in previous shows. And also on the blog, I'll throw on little tidbits of information about things I've run into uh, that impact my thoughts on, on teaching in general and learning about music and performing music as well. Let's get things going now with a chat with Mr. Matthew Arau. And next on the program, I am so pleased to welcome a good friend of the show and announcer for the show, Mr. Matthew Arau, director of bands at Loveland High School in Loveland, Colorado. Matthew, welcome. Hey, Chad. It's great to be back. Uh, what we're talking about today is uh, an update on the American Band College, ABC, uh, which just wrapped up. Uh, uh, how many weeks were you out there? I was out there for about three weeks. Three weeks, and and uh, it's uh, another round of the summer uh, uh, training out there in um, Oregon. Can you just uh, give our listeners a, a, an update, maybe just a very brief, if they don't know anything about ABC, first of all, they could go back a few episodes and listen to a very good uh, interview that you gave us and that uh, Max McKee gave us about ABC. But just for those who don't know anything about it, just a, a couple of words on what it is, and then your thoughts on uh, how things went this year. 
Oh, you bet. Well, the American Band College is a master's program for music educators uh, to receive a master's degree in music education. And it allows uh, teachers to not stop their their career in their primary jobs and come out to beautiful Ashland, Oregon from June 20th uh, through July 5. And the American Band College brings in some of the top music educators and performers on all instruments uh, to help band directors become better band directors and uh, along the way uh, achieve a master's degree as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, what were some things from this round, from this year, uh, that really stood out in your mind that were really uh, unique things that happened? Well, uh, the clinicians, as always, are phenomenal, mm-hmm. and this summer was no different uh, ranging from Frank Wicks as a guest conductor of the ABC band and conducting teacher, uh, and Paula Kreider is just phenomenal and inspiring uh, to everybody and just shares her wisdom and uh, inspires us to be better teachers and better human beings. She was also a guest conductor and clinician. Uh, Johan DeMay was a guest conductor and clinician as well, and the American Band College uh, commissioned a new work by Johan de May called the Kitty O'Shea Suite, uh-huh. and now, it is phenomenal. For those who don't know, could you explain what, what significance that has to the band world? <laughs> well, you bet. Well, uh, Kitty O'Shea's is a wonderful pub at the Hilton Towers in Chicago on Michigan Avenue, and it's been a hangout for years at the Midwest Clinic. And uh, to, to memorialize or commemorate our great times at Kitty O'Shea's, uh, Max McKee and the American Band College uh, formed a consortium to commission Johann de May to compose a, a work combining uh, many great uh, Irish folk songs into uh, just a jovial, uplifting, and very musical piece that we premiered at the American Band College this and summer. And what, what were your impressions of the piece? It's quite challenging for the woodwinds. There's reels uh, that you know are, are really technically challenging. The the crowd uh, just loves the the Irish uh, the Irish tunes. Uh, Johan actually arranged vocal parts, so we had a hundred band directors singing the Irish folk songs, and the other hundred uh, forming a band for the oh, for the wow. world premiere. And it got a thunderous standing ovation. And I think it is going to be a classic that, that many bands are going to want to tackle. tackle now, will this, this be now. published soon? Do you know? I, I believe that it, it may be available uh-huh. already, uh, at least through, through Johan, uh, as I was one of the uh, people that helped commission it. So I received you know a score in parts. And so we'll be going after it, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. What grade level would you estimate that piece to be? I'd say it's a five. And approximately how long do you remember the duration? Um, I, about 12 minutes. Uh-huh. Oh, so it's a fairly significant piece. I think so. It would be kind of a so. main piece for a, a high school band to play at a... Yeah, I think a high, real high caliber high schools and certainly universities are, are going to love it, at, uh, particularly as a concert closer. Mm-hmm. Do you recall if there were um, any major solos in the piece? Um, there's oboe, uh-huh. English horn, uh, solos that are, are quite major, and a euphonium as well. Mm-hmm. And there's great percussion writing, um, lots of Irish instruments in the percussion section, so that adds a international flavor to your concert. Now, if it's got lyrics, I can imagine if people really get into this tune, it, you know, it, being at Kitty O'Shea's at Midwest, 
I could hear the thunderous singing because uh, you know there there are a couple of shared drinks uh, in that in that room. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, well, you know, occasionally that happens. <laughs> I mean, I heard. Uh, I could help not help but hear because it's so loud. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's pretty cool. A, a neat idea. Was this uh, the brainchild of a of Max, or was it a group kind of idea, or how did how did this come about? I really think it was uh, stemming from. The, the brain of Max, Max McKee. And, and, uh, you know, he being Irish, he just loves Irish, Irish tunes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a really an amazing story, like how it all came to be. And I'm sure Max would love to share that with you, maybe on a, a future interview, yeah. but Johan moving to New York, uh, turned out his neighbor was really, and I won't give away the punchline uh -huh. because this story is unbelievable. Okay. That, I'd love for Max to share it on a future, <laughs> okay. a future interview, maybe with Johan as well. Yeah, um, I should note that the vocal parts are optional. Okay, um, so you don't need to have the vocal parts, but it really added a lot if you can pull that together as well. Yeah, well, that sounds really cool. Um, you mentioned uh, Paula Kreider. Uh, were there any? Can you tell us about uh, clinics that you had with her? What her message was throughout the the, the three weeks? Sure. Well, Paula is. It's kind of the message, the messenger of being a positive conductor and finding ways to raise the level of an ensemble, but doing it in a positive manner. And what's great about Paula is she'll give a clinic and she'll go over ways of being positive and then she'll model that in her own conducting and rehearsing mm -hmm. with the band. And that's great to just see the message match the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, she she gave a clinic on uh, 17 ineffective conducting <laughs> techniques. Yeah. Kind of a play on the seven highly effective habits. Of, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that was she's really funny too and humorous in in her uh, you know delivery. She also talked about within conducting. There's the technical, um, you know, intellectual, and then at the highest level emotional conducting and performance and it's just great to always strive to those higher levels mm -hmm. well now were there any other clinicians that you saw or, or conductors that really stood out as being a very special contribution to abc mm -hmm. well it's, this is the second time that frank wicks has been a guest conductor and clinician uh, at abc and he's just a master of the craft yeah and, and the way he knows how to to, uh, you know, change the levels of the sounds in the ensemble, uh, conducting a march under him or performing a march under his leadership is, is awesome. Mm -hmm. He knows exactly what he wants and he gets it out of the ensemble. It's, it's really, really terrific. I and mean, his eyes are so loaded with information too. You know, you just, when, he, when he locks eyes with you, you just can't, you're frozen, you know, you can't. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's like a grandmaster. Who are some other folks that were at uh, ABC this year that, uh, that uh, the listeners would be interested in hearing about? Sure. Well, uh, Bobby Shu was the trumpet clinician Fantastic. and just bringing so much history uh, and the stories he shared and, and in terms of uh, how to play really high on the trumpet mm -hmm. um <laughs> the kinesthetic awareness and that importance now, was, did, was phenomenal did he teach the three p's then pinch press and pray is that <laughs> <laughs> i've heard about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um you know other great people that abc has had um and is he's out there every summer now is robert ponto oh yeah 
as part of the conducting faculty uh -huh. from University of Oregon. Oh, yeah. And I just love Bob Ponto. He's, I, I really feel like he thinks out of the box. Yeah. There's the wind ensemble idiom, and he's bringing in uh, more popular music mm -hmm. and, and trying to learn from uh, more contemporary music and not being afraid of it. Yeah. And seeing how it could be integrated into what we do as a profession. Right. Yeah. So I always enjoy conversations with Bob about those kinds of things. Uh, other clinicians that came out are uh, Robert Breithaupt, uh, percussion clinician uh, from Capital mm -hmm. University. I noticed he's actually giving a clinic at, Mid at the Midwest Clinic okay. uh, this, this coming year. And a uh, wonderful percussion clinician. Uh, let's see. Greg Yasinitsky was a jazz theory clinician. Uh, he's a well-known jazz composer. Mm -hmm. Harry Waters is a phenomenal trombone player. If you haven't had a chance to to meet Harry Waters or listen to him. It's just incredible cool. uh, player. He played at the Dukes of Dixieland and, uh, you know, he's just doing great things. Um, so he was a guest, uh, performer and teacher as well. He's in the U S army band brass quintet mm -hmm. as well. in trombone. Now, um, aside from all work, uh, there is some recreational stuff that goes on, right? We've kind of talked about this before. In fact, I saw on Facebook, what was this about this early morning running group? <laughs> Are you, were you ill? What's, what's <laughs> I don't know what came over me, but uh, we started the American Band College Running Club, uh -huh. and it actually turned out to be really fun for for teachers that wanted to stay in shape or try to get in shape. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we did. We started. We met at the at the track at 6 a.m. and and would make plans from there. Well, it was actually really, really cool. I, I ran into uh, another band director from Colorado, uh -huh. and she was reading a book called Spark, which is actually talking about running makes you smarter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, of course, I've read a lot about how music makes you smarter, right. so we try to combine running and music. And you get and drum to... core. But... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> actually, it, it brought up an interesting point, and it, it was about why do students get better grades during marching season? Okay. And we've always thought it was about time management, but now that I've read this book, I'm thinking it could have to do with the athleticism of marching band in addition uh -huh. to the time management and music uh, that, that could lead to students getting better grades. So, of course, that could be a research project uh, for, for a PhD down the road. Cool. <laughs> well, so you do have make time for fun out there, too. And I want to make sure everybody knows that it's intensive and you learn a lot, but there's also a lot of fun stuff, too. I mean, you saw a show or you guys see shows out there, things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ashland is, is a great setting. There's... Uh, wonderful Shakespeare Festival, one of the top in the world. You know, I did break away to see Hamlet, uh, an evening performance. It was phenomenal, and I had a great time and brought some students along um, as well. The, you know, there's the ABC Ultimate Frisbee Club now. Um, you know, the you know there could be the ABC Drinking Club. You know, <laughs> Kitty O'Shea Suite. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, uh, there have been some changes though with uh, ABC, and maybe you could talk a little bit about the new affiliation with that organization. Sure. The American Band College is now affiliated with Sam Houston State University, and the degree is actually through Sam Houston State University. So it's a distance learning program. And it's worked out really, really well. We, we've had a faculty member of Sam Houston State uh, on the board and working with American Band College for, for quite a few years. His name's Mike Bankhead. Uh -huh. And uh, he was a colonel, uh, commander of the United States Air Force Band. And now he is the department chairman of music at Sam Houston State University. And he was 
thrilled um, with the opportunity to be affiliated with the American Band College. And uh, that university um, has just been wonderful to work with. And the degree is now through Sam Houston State. So will the uh, will it still continue to be held in Oregon or will it move to um, Sam Houston State? It's actually still held in Oregon, which is awesome because you really have the best of both worlds. Yeah. The setting in Ashland, Oregon is, is to die for, and it adds so much to the program, just the setting where it's held. And, uh, and to be affiliated with a major university like Sam Houston State is wonderful. Yeah. Well, so if people want to find out more about uh, American Band College, how they can get involved, uh, where should they go? You bet. Go to bandworld.org. Mm-hmm. And on that website, you know, you can find all the information about the American Band College and, and how to apply. One of the great things about American Band College is the cost is much lower than, than most master's degree programs. Uh-huh. So it, it, it's affordable. The quality of education is, is great. The students uh, every year, since I'm on, I'm on the staff of American Band College, it's wonderful for me to experience the, the feeling of that the first-year students seem to have every summer just blown away yeah. by the caliber of teachers and how much they learn. They just can't wait to get back to their bands, and they know that they're going to raise the level of their band programs immediately yeah. with the information that they get. Sounds fantastic, and uh, and I would love to get out there sometime and, and, and peer in on uh, the goings-on. It sounds like a really great time, and uh, I've been able to meet a lot of the people involved with it, and it seems like a, a tight-knit group of people and a really good support group. Uh, this sounds like Absolutely. it's not the kind of thing where once you leave, you're done. It sounds like it's kind of a, a net of people. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one other thing about Kitty O'Shea's is the American Band College always has a get-together at the Midwest Clinic uh, for American Band College students, alumni, and clinicians. And it's really a veritable who's who in the band world yeah. when you come to Kitty O'Shea's that evening. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, so uh, uh, to turn this on you for a second, what's going on with the Loveland High School Band in Colorado these days? Well, uh, we're, we have a lot of exciting things coming up. Uh, we were selected to be a headlining performing group at the Western International Band Clinic Good. on November 19, 2010. And so we're definitely looking forward to that. We just hosted Drums Along the Rockies, the Loveland edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the other day, and that was really, really exciting. We got to play the national anthem in front of a huge drum corps crowd. Wow. That was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the marching band is off and running, uh, coming off of winning the Colorado State Championship last year. Uh, we're just hoping to do our absolute best this season as well. So you do have some uh, outstanding stuff coming in your future, and as always, I wish you the best in the upcoming season. I know you're uh, a hardworking guy, and you've got a great bunch of students and staff out there in Loveland, and it's a beautiful place. Um, If anyone is out in that neck of the woods, I'm sure you could uh, call Matthew and uh, talk to him, swing by rehearsal. Uh, He's a a very high-quality conductor, and uh, and I encourage everybody to try to talk to him if they're out in that area of the country. Uh, So thank you once again, Matthew Rao, for joining us. I'm sure that will not be the last time, and and we really appreciate hearing your update on the American Band College. All right. Thank you so much, Chad. 
Thanks again to Matthew for joining us once again on the program. And if you haven't gotten a chance to head over to bandworld.org, it's a it's a great website. And if you can invest in the subscription to the online magazine, what really makes it a great value is that you get extra stuff with it. You get access to databases online. You get access to audio downloads, all sorts of information and materials beyond just a magazine. Uh, so it really is worth it. And you can learn more about the Western International Band Clinic, which I do need to add in that uh, Matthew uh, left me a message shortly after that interview and said, in fact, uh, there had been a discussion between Max McKee and Johan, Johan de Mai that uh, Johan is going to conduct the, the Kitty O'Shea suite with the Loveland High School Wind Ensemble at Wibbick. This fall, uh, a tremendous honor for the Loveland High School Band uh, to have Johan de Mai conducting them on this composition, uh, this tribute to an iconic pub for band directors who have attended the Midwest Clinic. So congratulations to Matthew, and I can't wait to hear the Kitty O'Shea Suite. Now let's head over to the core repertoire corner and talk about one of my favorite pieces for Wind Ensemble, Emblems by Aaron Copeland. I remember... Back when I heard this piece the first time, it, I had to have been about 20 years old. And when I heard this piece, is when I thought, oh, Copeland, oh, cool, I like him, yeah. I like Appalachian Spring and Rodeo, cool, yeah, giddy up. And then I heard this. And it was not at all what I expected. In fact, it was rather unlike any kind of music for band that I had been exposed to. And my eye muscles hurt because they were rolling so far back up in my head. Because in my, in my ignorant youth, I could not see beyond the most obvious of melodies. And, and in time, I began to understand and appreciate the piece. And, and every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm able to find some new things hidden in there. Just a little background on the piece. On May 16th, 1963, Keith Wilson, who was president of the CBDNA, College Band Directors National Association, wrote a letter to Copeland to start talking about uh, commissioning a composition uh, from him that would be the only piece by that composer written specifically for advanced wind bands. Keith Wilson said he wanted, quote, the finest quality. Of work. He expressed concern at the scarcity of band works that had the highest level of quality, and he was frustrated with the publisher's reluctance to print music that is of the finest quality because of the potential difficulty level and limited appeal. And what I love about this story is it connects directly with things that still happen right now all the time. If you talk to someone who is currently in that market or in that area, there's a, always a, a fine line between doing things musically for band that, that are on the edge or too far over the edge. Um, you don't want to leave your listeners, but you don't want to do the same thing that's been done over and over and over in band music. So 60, 1963, they were still facing some of the same issues that we face now. Keith Wilson said to Copeland... All right, the CBDNA is going to guarantee the sale of at least 200 copies of this piece. 
and he projected that as many as 400 copies could actually be sold. Uh, he also told him the purpose of the commission was to enrich the wind band's repertory with music representing the composer's best work, and not one written with all sorts of technical and practical limitations. Uh, Copeland initially was hesitant, but the guarantee of, of those sales of at least 200 pieces, probably 400 pieces, prompted him to accept the composition. The work was premiered on December 18, 1964 by the University of Southern California Band in Tempe, Arizona. So the problem is, is that in 1963, a lot of band directors looked at Copeland and thought of this. And you can imagine how they felt when they heard this. Exactly as you might imagine, Emblems was not well received by band conductors, and the promise of 200 sold copies was not fulfilled at the time. So here we have one of the most significant American composers of the earliest 20, early 20th century, and band directors are poo-pooing his work for us, and, and it's because it did not meet expectations. You know, Ray Kramer once said to me that the distance between um, expectation and reality is where frustration lies. And there was a, a great deal of frustration with this piece. But if the band directors who had a problem with this piece had looked at what other stuff Copeland was working on at the time, he had just done connotations for orchestra. If you go online and check out connotations for orchestra, it's a lot like emblems in a lot of ways. And he had gotten a negative response for Connotations for Orchestra as well, except Connotations for Orchestra was a 12-tone piece written in 1962. David Whitwell wrote an article and addressed this to band directors. And he said, I'm sure that many conductors have shared my first impressions. The work was heard as disjointed, percussive in manner, in a manner unfamiliar in the music of Copland and non-lyrical. Unfamiliar in the music of Copland two band directors. So the problem is that the, the band directors were not familiar with what Copeland was writing right then. They were still living in the past of what they enjoyed and what was really popular by Copeland. So it's like going to, you know, Dave Matthews and commissioning a new work for band and it comes out sounding like a country tune. And it was would be the first country piece for band, uh, original idiomatic country music for band. Uh, everyone would be really surprised. Well, some people who know Dave Matthews might not be so surprised. So Dave Whitwell wanted to address this and, and justify or defend Copeland's piece. Uh, he said, the fact that these impressions do not disappear with casual score study has not helped to add admirers from the ranks of the disappointed. And what he's saying is, you have to spend time with this piece to understand what's going on. And it is not as abstract as it may first sound. For those who are really used to the clearest of melodies, the most predictable of harmonic progressions, the conventions that come up again and again and again, 
this is going to sound different. But if you can look at what it is Copeland is doing, he's not using the melody as the main thing. He's using the raw sound force of the band. The combinations of timbres and textures developed in a very clear way rather than developing triads in a one four five seven one progression and for those who have trouble listening to this piece if you can step back from the desire to have the seventh the dominant seventh resolve to the tonic every eight bars you can really unlock some cool stuff in this piece really interesting stuff copeland said emblems was a three-part form slow fast slow with the return of the first part varied so it's a, a very straightforward form embedded in the slow section is a quotation of amazing grace think of the application of playing perhaps amazing grace and then playing emblems and drawing connections allowing the students to see the different ways a simple folk tune or a hymn tune can be treated Copeland went on to say that he had not initially recognized a connection between the harmonies and the hymn tune of Amazing Grace, but when he was perusing an anthology of American folk music, he realized the existence of such a relationship. So the tail wagged the dog a little bit. He wrote the, the, the harmonic underpinnings, and you can't really call it a progression. It's kind of a, a series of sonorities, and realized he could fit Amazing Grace in there, and it works. Uh, three sections are delineated by tempo and textural changes. So if you're looking for uh, an extended dominant that resolves to an unexpected key change, you're not going to find it. But you will find the texture shift. And that's what he's playing with. He's playing with sonorities, but a very clear textural and formal structure that you can lock on to and your students can lock on to to understand the piece better. Copeland is known for his quartal quintal harmonies and he does present those at the beginning of the piece. Let's check those out. Here's the beginning. Later on, he really develops the texture and rhythm and takes a simple rhythmic motive and expands it over an amount of time. So it's a rhythmic motive. It's rhythmic elements, rhythmic interest, not melodic or harmonic interest that glues this piece together. So if the players and the conductor can understand that they are dimensions of music that are not often developed in most grade three, grade four pieces that you find for band, but they are rhythmic and formal, then it's, it is an easily connected piece. And then you can use that as an anchor and expand away from that and say, now let's look and see what these harmonies are. Let's play this chord. Is there a third? No. Well, let's play the chord after it. Well, how can these two be related? How can Amazing Grace fit in there? Let's listen to a little bit of the Amazing Grace section. Here it is.
Another way to look at this piece is to take the piece and hold it really far away. Take the score and hold it far away and kind of squint your eyes a little bit. Look for how he manipulates the density of the piece. It gradually increases and it drops off to nothing. And it gradually increases and it drops off to nothing. And that's what makes this thing a bear to put together because you have to have players who can blend and be heard individually, but then as it develops, they can fit into a larger, fuller, richer ensemble sound. And what tends to happen is the thinner parts, and I'm talking about the thin scoring, the thinner textures, often sound brittle in this piece, often sounds a little too biting. Now, um, David Whitwell addressed how clarinet players approach this piece as an example of the, the wrong way in which a lot of band directors at the time were teaching this piece. It's well known that Copeland would treat the clarinets of the band as violins. And actually, that does cause some problems, especially with articulation. You have to really take articulation with a grain of salt, especially in the clarinets in Copeland's pieces for band or transcriptions for band because uh, he articulated them in the way a violin section would play them. And the problem is, is where a violin section would see four quarter notes with no markings and play a clarinet section of the time would see four quarter notes in a measure. And if they had no other markings, they would play them do, 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 do. And if you multiply the number of differences in those articulations through 16th notes, 8th notes, fast passages, you have a very tonguey sound, you have a, a very disjointed sound, and it lacks flow. And something I'm always talking about with my students is how do we create connectivity? How do we create flow? Even across rests, there should be musical connection. And, and I work with groups that only look at the note for what it is and don't look at the note as a part of something larger. And that's where a lot of groups lose musical flow and musical connection. Moving from one section to another, from the beginning of the piece to the end. And that movement, if you go down to the smaller and smaller levels, starts with a tongue and an articulation and a note length that is resonant and not clipped. Many, many times, one of the first things I say is, ah, please don't clip arrival notes. It happens all the time, and I say, please don't clip it. The last note is not tongued with a harder tongue or played with a shorter length just because it's the last note. And be very careful about accented notes, especially at the louder dynamics. You don't need to effect that with the tongue. It all kind of ties into the same basic issues of band players at the younger levels really like to use that tongue at the beginnings of notes and ends of notes because they feel like they're doing something and they hear it and they did it. Yes, I did it. I played that note right. But the problem is, is that if we don't expand and use larger eyes to see the puzzle pieces as part of something bigger, a bigger, beautiful picture, then it's just like taking the puzzle pieces and laying them on a table, but not quite together with space in between. And if you get far enough back, you can kind of see the picture there. But if you're at a normal range, it just looks disjointed. And, and this is something that I think happens with emblems. We play it in a somewhat brittle way. David Whitwell would say we play it with a, a too crisp of a tongue. 
We need to look at it as strings would look at it, and we can unlock greater flow and connectivity. Copeland said of the title of this piece, Emblems, was meant, quote, to suggest musical states of being, the exact nature of which must be determined by the listener. This goes right in line with the way Copeland approached music. He said, quote, I think, and this is not about emblems, but he said, I think that my music, even when it sounds tragic, is a confirmation of life, of the importance of life. If there's a unifying core to in it all, it is a sense of affirmation. Knowing that when you play Rodeo, when you play Appalachian Spring, when you play emblems, look for his unifying core that is a sense of affirmation and how Amazing Grace fits into that sense perfectly. And he does a fabulous job with that. Yes, he stretches the ear. Yes, he gives players intense challenges here that only the finest ensembles can really play with great sensitivity. In fact, um, in terms of stretching the ear, you know, he, here's another quote. He says, I have never known a public concert of a variegated makeup that wasn't enlivened by 10 minutes of controversial music. Even those who are sure to hate it are given something to talk about. And he certainly did give the wind band medium something to talk about when this piece came out. And now it is considered one of the pillars of our core repertoire. And it is played by fine ensembles year in and year out. And it is certainly not cliche. And I can't imagine it ever going out of style or being stale because of the challenges, because the way that he develops this piece and gives you an idea and does something with it is different than even a lot of stuff coming out right now by some of our most cutting edge composers. Check out Emblems if you get the chance. Download it. Go to iTunes. Check it out. Order the score. Take a listen to it. Um, start to unlock the possibilities of, of what a wind, wind band can be and what they can do. If you're interested in core repertoire and exploring things like this, take a look at my book, Great Music for Winds, the top 100 works in grades 4, 5, and 6. Copeland's Emblems is in there, uh, and 99 other pieces that were elected by a panel of our most respected conductors in the field. It's got programming information, solos, cost, pricing information. It's got programming selections, what types of groups should play the pieces, in what venues they might sound good, who has solos, what recordings are available. If you're interested in exploring the core repertoire, that's a great place to start. There are other wonderful resources out there as well. The Top 100 book is available on Amazon.com at a pretty good discount. You can also find it at BarnesandNoble.com, Target.com, uh, J.W. Pepper. You know, next time you have a music order, you can throw it on there. And most... Um, Music stores can order that for you. And you can just follow the link at my blog site, chadnicholson.wordpress.com. So check it out when you have the chance. And that's another visit to the Core Rep Corner. And now we'll move on to the second part of our two-part interview with Dr. Kevin Walchick, a composer of music not only for band but for a variety of genres and media. And, uh, and he has joined us in the last episode and this episode to talk about commissions, his perspectives on composing, uh, the situation of the band identity, and selling music, renting versus purchasing. So here is the second half of that interview.
can we talk a little bit about uh, your relationship with the Midwest Clinic um, and the octet uh, that you, had a, you co- were commissioned by the Midwest Clinic, but also a future commission you have for the Midwest Clinic? Sure. Um, <laughs> and well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lay all my cards on the table here. I I knew nothing about Midwest Clinic prior to about a year and a half. Ago. <sighs> I'm sorry. I've been, I've been locked in my composing closet for years, and so I don't get out much. Um, my kids call it the cave. Daddy's in his cave. So, um, Ooh, I, wish, I wish I had a cave. I need a cave. <laughs> but uh, being in my cave for so long, I just don't get out much. And so what happened was I, I came to school one day, and I had this email uh, from Paula Thornton. Uh-huh. And, of course, everybody listening to this knows Paula Thornton, right. but I didn't know Paula Thornton at the time. And uh, the email stated, um, hi, Kevin, uh, this is Paula Thornton. I represent... Midwest Clinic um, and the commissioning committee, and we decided that we would like to commission you for the 2010 uh, Midwest Clinic commissions. Uh, please get back to us as soon as possible and let us know what you think. And I opened the email, and after I read it, I kind of went, hmm, I don't know who this is. I don't know what this Midwest <laughs> Clinic is. And so what I did was I, I called Dan Pham. <laughs> I called a band director who yeah. would know. <laughs> and I said, and here was the thing. They said that the the premiere would be on December 18th. And I was planning, my wife and I were planning to go to Tokyo to listen to Ray Kramer direct the second symphony, my second symphony yeah. uh, with Musashino mm-hmm. on December 18th. And I thought, uh, so I called Dan, I thought, you know, should I go to Tokyo or should I go to Chicago? Because I don't really know what this is all about because they were saying, you know, it just needs to be a, a grade two to four uh, chamber work. Mm-hmm. And so my big question was, should I be at, you know, the the Japanese premiere of my symphony with Ray Kramer conducting, or should I be in Chicago for a, a premiere of a grade two to four piece? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Dan, the first thing he did was he laughed at me. He yeah. said, Kevin, go to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he said that will be way more important for your career um, and with all the people that you'd be meeting yeah. and, and being exposed to. We, right. It's just going to be more helpful for your career. So I said, okay. <laughs> so then I went out to the website, of course, to Midwest and started snooping around there. And, and of course, you see Ray Kramer out there and yeah. Paula mm-hmm. Thornton and all that. And it's like, oh, my, okay, this is a pretty serious organization. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, of course, I accepted. And just talk a little bit about the piece. Um, it, uh, I ended up with an octet. Uh-huh. They wanted to do chamber work, and the chamber work was up to me. And uh, what I decided was that I wanted to kind of make everybody happy because it, it tries to, cur- of course, Midwest tries to curtail to both band and orchestral world, right. worlds. And uh, so I decided to do an, a mixed uh, instrumental octet um, for flute, clarinet, bass clarinet, alto saxophone. And then two strings in there, violin and cello. Uh-huh. Uh, and then percussion. One percussion is playing multiple percussion. Mm-hmm. And, and all accompanied from a, with a piano. And mm-hmm. so my, my thought there was that this could be a piece that you know, could be played at a concert at any high school. Or it could also be done for solo ensemble competition. Right. And that the pianist would be kind of the director, so that it was written from that standpoint okay. that you you wouldn't necessarily need a conductor standing in front, mm-hmm. uh, that the pianist could pretty much drive everything from that point. Hmm. 
Uh, and so that's what I ended up with. It's I wanted to do something that was fun, so I ended up doing <laughs> kind of a. It's not really a uh, uh, a specific Latin uh, feel, but I call it danza provincialis. Uh-huh. So it's uh, it's kind of a Latin flavor to it, mm-hmm. and it's a fast, slow, fast. Go figure. <laughs> uh, but it really sets up more like uh, a, a middle. Uh, like it's the middle slow section is almost like a second movement. It, it all runs uh, together, but there's one theme that runs through all three sections, um, and it's just slowed way down. And there's more heavy harmonies to it in the in the middle section. Uh, and then the the third movement, if I can call it that, is kind of a, a reprisal of the first movement. So it plays out as one piece, one one long movement, but kind of three short movements, right. so to speak. Yeah. So it'll be it should be a pretty fun piece. Um, there are a couple of, if I recall, <laughs> there are a couple of temporal modulations in there, but they're pretty okay. easy just yeah. to make it make it a little bit challenging. The only thing that makes it, I, I I told Paula when I sent it to her that it's basically a grade four rhythm wise, but everything else in terms of um, the the melodic and harmonic aspects it's very stepwise yeah it's it's basically grade three yeah. but rhythmically uh, there's a lot of 16th note things just to make it syncopated and so it's it's a grade three four that's yes. what it ended up being so that sounds like a lot of fun yeah well we'll yeah. see i haven't heard it yet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you have another commission for the midwest clinic yeah this one was <laughs> really unexpected um a few months back i i received a phone call uh being on west coast time i'm always three hours behind yeah the east coast <laughs> folks as you know right now mm-hmm. and i when i got to school i had a phone message from ray kramer and so i listened to the message and, and ray said hey i've got a couple things i'd like to talk to you about give me a call when you have a moment so it's you know it's ray kramer i immediately called him thinking oh no what did i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been and, there <laughs> uh, and, and the thing about ray is he and i have never met yeah. we've never We've never spoken to each other. We've only emailed back and forth in terms of kind of the business end. Hey, I need this chart. Can you right. send it to Shino and but send me the score? And so I, I've never really met him. Um, but last summer I did know um, through again through Dan, fam, that uh, his daughter was was killed in in a bicycle accident, yeah. and that was actually the second person that summer. Um, I did not know Heather at that time last summer. I just, I felt impelled to just start composing a work for, for Heather and Heather has, we have a lot of similarities. Heather and I, we love to bike. Um, Heather, uh, she adopted four children. I've adopted two children. I am adopted myself and her two children, uh, two of her children, excuse me, are, are from, uh, Vietnam and two of them are from China. So what I did was I, I took Heather's name, and I use a process in which I take pitch. Uh, excuse me, I take uh, alpha numeric um, information and I transfer that into pitch information. And so what happens is her name Heather becomes pitch material. And then I also took a Vietnamese folk song and a Chinese folk song, and I just started to do some sketches until um, I was really drawn to having to put that aside and get to the symphony because yeah. that had a due date coming up. And so I had not talked to Ray about that at all. He knew nothing. Nobody on the planet knew anything about that. I just, I just uh-huh. ended up with about four pages of sketches um, that I just felt led to, mm-hmm. to begin writing for Heather. Um, so probably 
I don't know, four or five months later, I get this phone call from Ray Kramer saying um, that he has stepped down from the presidency of Midwest, mm-hmm. which now I, I know what Midwest is, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and that um, he was given. And he's very humble about this. So basically, what he said to me was he was giving a he was given a commission from Midwest uh-huh. to honor his his daughter Heather, and he followed that that up by saying, and I would like to choose you wow. to write that commission. Amazing. And I couldn't say a thing for, yeah. <laughs> for about 30 to 60 seconds. I mean, it was just dead silent. Mm-hmm. I was, I was dumbfounded. And the other reason was I had this piece in the back of my mind that I already started wow. that he didn't know about. Huh. And so the only thing that came out of my mind or my mouth yeah. was, I think I said this exactly. Well, Ray, you know, I've already started this piece. That's amazing. And then he was silent for about 30 seconds. And I thought, oh, no, I've either just lost this commission because yeah, yeah. <laughs> he thinks I'm some sort of a weirdo right. or or maybe I'll just. So I, I kind of broke that silence wow. and said, well, here's what I've done. And I started talking to him about using his name or using Heather's name and using the the uh, Vietnamese folk song and the Chinese folk song that mm-hmm. depicted his his grandchildren. And and then he started we started conversing more and more and I, I felt a little bit better. Than, oh, geez. You know, he was, he was okay with that. Wow. So it was just, it was just very strange that yeah. all of this lined up the way it did. That is amazing. So in the end, what, what we have is he asked for a, a band work of level four, five to be somewhere between, I think five and a half to seven and a half minutes. And he wants to, he wants to take that around uh, to his honor band right. concerts and things like that. Yeah. And um, he said that he wants it to be uplifting. It, it needs to it needs to be fast and energetic and something that portrays her life. He didn't want it to be you know gloomy and dark right. and sad. Yeah. So um, th- that will be due next June. Okay. So about a year from now. Okay. And uh, I probably and I asked Ray if I could actually fly out and talk to him and Molly. Yeah. And just get a little bit more uh, better feeling about Heather and who she was, mm-hmm. and they of course agreed to that. So I'll, I'll be heading out there on uh, September 11th to to visit Ray and Molly and meet him in person for the first time. And uh, so that's, well, that's where that is. That is a, a really amazing story. And um, yeah. when you meet him, it, it will confirm everything that you may have ever heard about right. uh, Ray and Molly. I mean, they're just um, they're they're Ray has. I always consider to be a not only a great model for um, being a good teacher and a and mm-hmm. a conductor, a great conductor, and studying scores and things like that, but just a, a being a model of a, being a good person. Right. And uh, they both just exude warmth. And so uh, I cannot wait to hear the piece. I cannot wait to hear it. And especially being close to that situation, uh, it's I can't wait to see how you treat it. Uh, I, I'm sure it will be really really nice. And and I know Ray and Molly will appreciate it as well. Um, so that that sounds like a, a bittersweet kind of situation, but it will be, I think, uh, it, especially as Ray takes it around and plays it, um, a lot of people will get the chance to hear it, and it lets people connect with him as well. Right, I think. exactly. Um, so uh, you had a recent premiere uh, of your second symphony. Now, th- was this premiere at University of Oklahoma, or did you mention it was somewhere else? Well, the, the premiere of the entire symphony was at the University of Oklahoma on April 22nd. The uh, Indiana University is part of the consortium, and um, Stephen went ahead and 
I guess, premiered the third movement. We're talking about Steve Pratt down at IU Bloomington, Steve right? Pratt, uh-huh. And his Wind Symphony premiered that, just the third movement, which is the shortest movement. It's a 35-minute work, and just the last six minutes is the third movement. Okay. So he premiered that at his concert in February, at the end of, middle of February, and then he took that to the North Central CBDNA Regional at uh, Illinois State University at the end of February and, mm-hmm. and performed it again there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, Oklahoma was the lead consortium member. It was really Bill Wakefield who um, commissioned the work uh, when he was in his last year as president of CBDNA. Mm-hmm. So it had a connection with CBDNA. Um, and he, uh, their group did a, an outstanding job on April 22nd. It was, and that was, for me, the first time I had heard the, the whole work straight through. And when they commissioned it, did they give you any um, guidance in terms of what type of piece they were looking for, or did you kind of have, you know, it, you might uh, uh, explain to us, you know, the, mm-hmm. the general concept behind it and uh, and what kind of guidelines you were given? Right. More more often than not, when a, a band composer is commissioned, there are a lot of uh, limitations imposed, mm-hmm. and you know this. They might say, okay. Please write a grade four level that doesn't exceed eight minutes. <laughs> and yeah. could you please feature this section and yeah. don't write a whole lot of stuff for this section because they're kind of weak this year. <laughs> you know, and there's a there's just a lot of things that are imposed. And that's and that's okay. From a composer standpoint, that's okay because it gives us a, a, a point from which to jump off and, and really aim for. Mm-hmm. But when uh, Dan Pham was, uh, he's he was the doctoral conducting associate at that time, and so Dan was really kind of doing all the legwork for Bill on this. So it was, a, I got a, re, a phone call from Dan saying, "All right, Kevin, if if you could write anything you wanted to for band, what would it be?" Uh-huh. And I said, "Dan, the only thing I want is to have absolutely n- no limitations." On, on what I'm going to be writing. I want it to be very much as if, you know, Mozart was commissioned to write a symphony because mm-hmm. I don't imagine symphonies telling Mozart, okay, it's got to be six to seven minutes. It's mm-hmm. got to be in the rondo form here. And, yeah. I, you know, they're just allowed to create. Right. And, and we don't often get that opportunity as composers. So I told Dan, I, I don't want to be imposed with a limit. And I told him the only thing I re- would really like to do not the only thing, is it would have to be at least 25 minutes. I want to have time to make a statement. And um, the other thing is I told him I I don't want to be uh, limited by orchestrational color. So I want to add harp. I want to add celeste. Mm-hmm. I want to add all kinds of weird percussion. I want to be able to add piccolo trumpet to the first trumpet part. I want to be able to add flugelhorns. I want to be able to add another tenor sax for color. I want right. I want all my clarinets, the clarinet sections, I want them to be four first clarinets, four seconds, four thirds. I wanted a large ensemble. Um, and I knew what I was, I was probably asking the world, <laughs> but he said, okay, let me, let me get back to the consortium members and see what they say. And nobody had anything to say. You know, when you're dealing with the University of Texas and Michigan State and Indiana, right. they, they don't care. Right. They'll make it work. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so nobody had any issues with that. And so when Dan called back and said, okay, I have to impose one limitation. I said, okay, what is it? And he said, it has to be no less than 25 minutes. Oh, wow. Everything else is fair game. Huh. And even when I said, well, what if it goes 30 minutes or 40 minutes? And he basically said, well, you know, the Jerry Junkins of the world don't care. <laughs> yeah. If it's 40 minutes, it's 40 minutes. Yeah. So, so there were really no, even the time uh, limitation was not a, a, a big thing at all. Mm-hmm. So 
I was free to do what I wanted there. And, um, and so that's, that was the phone call I received mm-hmm. about that. Now there's some other things that go back, um, a few years when Dan was in Salem, we had a few interesting conversations about con- comparing the orchestral world with the band world. Right. And at that point I had had, you know, a, a lot of orchestral, um, world experiences and it, it, they're very different and but there are some other things that are very similar mm-hmm. and one of the things that we had talked about was that um that the band world sometimes has an identity crisis and i'm talking about these groups that i've been writing for the larger university groups yeah and that is that they they seek kind of the respect uh that say major symphony orchestras have mm-hmm. And personally, I think they should get that. Mm-hmm. But but the world, you know, when you say band, always has kind of this stigma about it. That it's, oh, it's, it's marching band or it's, right. you know, you get Saturday in the concert part yeah. you know, mm-hmm. uh, performances and brass bands and, and things like that. So there's this stigma about whether or not band music is has real serious literature to it. Uh-huh. And, and, of course, all band directors know there's – incredibly serious music associated with with the band um so i I think with this commission we decided that um you know we wanted to do something that was very something serious and something that would lend itself to the repertoire that could be like down the road hopefully it might be an old war horse right because it's it's a serious piece of music Mm -hmm. so that was one of the things that we we had talked about earlier and that that was one of the reasons why i'd asked for absolutely no limitation so that i was free to not have to worry about you know do i have to double this line just in case they're missing this instrument and i actually caught myself on a number of times as i was orchestrating (laughs) saying oh wait I don't have to think about that because I'm dealing with, you know, Indiana. I'm dealing yep. with Oklahoma. <laughs> you mean you don't have to have the phony tenor sax double exactly. all I, the time. I don't have to write in the Engli- in the alto sax one, oh, if you don't have an English horn, play this cue. <laughs> so and, and and I wrote an email <laughs> to uh, to Dan and Bill Wakefield because one day I was working on a section in the second movement and I noticed when I was done with these four bars that the only three instruments I had playing were the celeste, the harp, and what was the solo instrument? Oh, and um, a string bass. Okay. And I thought, wait a sec, none of these are associated with the wind ensemble except right. the string bass, but even then it's never given yeah. the solo capacity. So right. right in the middle of this work, there's this absolutely no wind <laughs> trio that's happening. And so it was fun to be able to sit back and say, I can do that with this piece. Yeah. And uh, and so that worked out really well. Uh, did you say it was a 35-minute piece? Yeah, it's about 35 minutes. How long did it take you to compose that piece? Um, I started, uh, like I said, I had a sabbatical last fall. It, mm-hmm. Last fall, actually, was a partial sabbatical. I taught a couple classes, but it was just limited to Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started the work probably in earnest about this time last year. So um, once my school got out mid-June, uh, then I can I can go full bore in composing and orchestrating. I had mm-hmm. probably come up with some sketches during the school year, but it's very difficult for me to write during the school year mm-hmm. yeah. uh, of anything substantial anyway. And usually it's just in the form of uh, uh, watered down sketches. Mm-hmm. So um, I had to. This was kind of the trick with this work. We had a couple of groups who were looking at hopefully premiering it this past spring. 
including Indiana and Oklahoma. And so what I wanted to do was to get the harder movements to those groups before the Christmas break. <laughs> so I started with the second movement, which is the longest movement and probably rhythmically the most difficult. And I prepped that and got that all ready to go so that it was out and to those band directors, parts and score by I think early October or late September. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went to task on the first movement and I got those into the uh, band director's hands and uh, the parts and score just before they they got away for the break. So very early December. And so that was kind of the, the main push yeah. <laughs> with trying to get all that done mm-hmm. um, for those groups uh, to be able to, to premiere this this spring, this mm-hmm. past couple months. And and then the, the shortest movement was the march, which um, I did over the Christmas break and got off to them in, in January. So they had the complete work. Um, and hopefully we're already looking at perf- uh, rehearsing parts of that uh, over the fall term so that they could just kind of clean those things up and then add the third movement right. come, come February. Yeah. So that's what happened. And then we had the performance in April of the entire thing. And then I made some notes, uh, just on some corrections that we made. Fortunately, I didn't have a whole lot to deal with that. And, um, and I just finished, <laughs> uh, inputting those corrections, printing out 20 copies of all the parts. And keep in mind that this is, a, a, the, the size of the band, there are 52 separate parts, mm-hmm. and then there are um, four parts each on the clarinet, one, two, and three parts, right. yeah. and then two tuba parts. So dupl- mm-hmm. so there were 63 different individual parts I had to produce wow. for each set, hmm. and that's times three movements. So I did that for 20 20 different uh, sets. So I had these boxes in my cave oh my from one gosh. end to the other. Yeah. And I had four four large paper boxes completely filled up with each movement mm-hmm. and, and the and the scores. And then I did all the binding uh, and all the oh art all the art for the scores and things like that. So it took me uh wow, I don't know, a few weeks just to do all that and collate and fold and staple and hmm. bind. And those just got out in the mail at the end of last week. So yeah. I'm feeling pretty good now. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, congratulations. That's a major, yeah. major accomplishment. Yeah. Um, so, a uh, quick question uh, uh, t- about what you use to compose. Are you do you use Finale or Sibelius, or do you use a sequencer or or pen and paper or I mean pencil and paper? What do you use to compose? Here's here's the process I I always follow, and I, I found out that I'm old school. Um, mm-hmm. I start usually at the piano. Um, okay. First of all, I, I start with the, some kind of research. This one was a very large piece in terms of what it was about. The scope of the work was was it was pretty epic, and so there was a uh, there was a uh, there was prose that went with it, and um, so there was a lot of just me sitting down and thinking through kind of the global aspect of what I was trying to say with this piece of music, and a lot of that is me grabbing a large sheet of um, score paper, just blank score paper, uh-huh. and just writing on it. Not music, but just writing down um, verbose words for me right, uh, yeah. that, to get me focused on what it is I'm trying to do. And then I, I look, I always start with the large picture, so I, I kind of globally look at, do I want three movements, do I want one large movement? And once I break those down, what are each of those movements going to do? And and then I get closer and closer and closer to putting notes on the, on the paper. But once I do that... Um, 
and in this piece of music, uh, the pros that I used um, was also converted into pitch material. And so I had to sit down. I usually sit down at the piano. And as I use a system to, to get the pitches, I will also sit down at the piano and just work with combinations of those pitches, mm-hmm. both melodically and harmonically. And I'll do that for a good, oh, I don't know, a good number of hours. Because I think once I have everything uh, chosen, when I say, wow, that's a harmony that I really want to expose, and this might be the quote-unquote dominant to that tonic. You know, it's not really functioning as tonic dominant, but I can set up these things to have relative consonance versus relative dissonance. Right. So they work each other over so that we hear it as being consonance and dissonance. Um, and once I start circling those things on my on my sketch pages and saying, this is a keeper, or crossing out the ones that I don't want, uh, things start to uh, come into focus a little bit more so in terms of how I want all that to happen. So then I go, to, I take those sketches, and the next thing I do is I have, um, <laughs> this is where I'm a lot different from most people, I take another step, and that is I start... Um, well, this isn't where I'm most. I, I go to more clean sketches. Okay. I start. I start dealing with musical concepts and making phrases and building sections of the work. Mm-hmm. It is very, very, very rare for me, after I have tons of sketch paper and tons of music sketches, that any of that gets thrown out. Mm-hmm. Because what I do is I start with something that's very small and I say, oh, that works. And then what I do is I build everything around that which works. Hmm. So normally I just stick to it to the point where if something's not quite working, then I you know, I tweak it, I, I start over, or I, I do something to make it continue to work. So it's very it's very rare for me to throw something out. Uh, if, if you were to look at all my sketches, there was only, for the symphony, there was only one other theme that I had started sketching that when I started orchestrating everything, I, I just told myself, this is going to add too much time to this movement proportionally. And so I, I took that one uh, melody out. Okay. That's the only thing I ever took out of that whole, wow. uh, all those sketches. Hmm. So uh, so I have kind of uh, the typical sketches you would see of composers, uh, handwritten sketches uh, from me sitting at my piano working things out. Yeah. Then the next stage is actually the one that most composers don't go to. And I will actually print out a score template for the instrumentation I have that has uh, the just blank a blank measure that takes up the entire page. And then I will do sit down and I will orchestrate the entire thing out by hand. Wow. It takes a lot of time. Hmm. Uh, but it's where I do most of my orchestrating. And one of the other things I should mention is for me, composing music, I, I orchestrate as I go. So I'm hearing colors as I go, and I'm hearing okay. combinations as I go. I, I don't do the typical thing where I do a piano reduction, and then I go to a process of orchestrating it. Uh, that's That tends to be more what most composers do. Right. Um, I, I, it, so it takes me longer because I'm already thinking about orchestration and who's getting what. And, and that helps me with things like balancing out registrational issues over the course of a movement um, and just you know the density um, mm-hmm. and colors and things like that. So once I finally finished that orchestrated score and I, I do that pretty cleanly, then I go to a computer notation setup and I input all that. And again, that takes quite a, a bit of time. Yeah. 
And I never listened to it back in Finale. I use Finale. Uh, I've been using Finale since version 1.0. <laughs> so I'm an, an original. You're a little bit ahead of me. I, I do have a, a bunch of uh, uh, floppies somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. And and the eight novels that yeah. were the instructions. At least eight novels, yeah, that weighed 40 pounds. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was. I'm an original 1987 boy wow. for Finale. Nice. So I've just been used to that. Yeah. Uh, so when I go to Finale, I, I put it all in there, and I um, I don't listen to it back there. I just because I, I'm so orchestrationally minded from the get-go, I know that Finale, even even with the Garatan instruments, they don't do what I'm listening for, and they certainly don't combine in colors that you yeah. get from live players in a hall. Right. So I just avoid that. Uh, maybe once in a while I will check uh, rhythmic aspects, mm-hmm. or I might check to make sure that a fugal passage is doing what I'm expecting it to do. Mm-hmm. Since I have composer chopped at the piano and I, I don't play right. <laughs> all that heavy-duty stuff. so um, And that's it. Then I extract the parts from there. And um, usually when I hear the piece, um, beyond me kind of just pecking away at the piano, um, it's when it's premiered. So it's, it's wow. kind of a scary moment. But <laughs> usually I, I rely on the band director to say, hey, this section really just kind of gets sucked into a black hole there's a problem (laughs) but i by then i think that i've I've done so much with focusing on the idiomatic writing for the instruments that i really don't come across those types of problems Mm -hmm. so um so it's it's been an effective process for me and i'll keep doing it and i thought you know when i when i do a lot of composition uh composer composing at the same time Uh of multiple pieces i always tell myself oh i think what i'll do is um I'll skip the orchestration um, part of it and go straight to finale and do the orchestration in finale. Yeah. But I, I always abandon that early on because I need to see the whole score there, and I can't do that in finale. And I need it's it's a tactile thing for me. Um, when I'm writing it with pencil um, and a ruler, I'm you know I I'm in a thought process that <laughs> that I'm used to from yeah. you know, 20 30 years ago. Yeah. So um, so that's the process for me. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, for uh, as for uh, future commissions, I know uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, clarinet concerto for Joe LeBlanc uh, in the president's own Marine Band. Uh, mm-hmm. When is that one going to debut? We're going to try and debut that with, um, uh, I guess the full version of it is slated for May 10th with Paul Popeil uh-huh. um, at the University of Kansas. Yep. And he has decided to be the um, – I should say graciously decided to be the uh, <laughs> the lead consortium <laughs> member on that. And I say that yeah. because he's just making the move over to Kansas oh, right yeah. now. So he has agreed to to lead the consortium and, and pull a lot of those groups together mm-hmm. um, starting in August. So um, I appreciate that from Paul. <laughs> yeah. So May, I'm, I'm hoping to have that ready to go out the door early uh, 2011, so mm-hmm. probably January, so they have the parts. Uh, and can start working on it uh, spring semester. So when you when you know there's a, an individual who's going to be playing that uh, premiere, do you th- keep that individual in mind, or do yeah. you just write the line as it as it happens, as it comes to you? This one, um, actually, for for most of them, I, I write for the person. Uh, the, uh-huh. the trumpet concerto from a few years ago was was, uh, was written for Tim Morrison of mm-hmm. uh, film score lore. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Hollywood, uh, what is it, the L.A. Recording Arts Orchestra, and John Williams' favorite trumpet player, so you hear him a lot on a lot of the John Williams um, soundtracks. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, for him, I wrote something very, and this is what he said, he wanted something very lyrical and exposed in the upper register because that's what he does, and so it was was easy to to do that. It's easy as a composer to write 
when you when you know what those players are capable of doing because you can hear them playing the the, the lines as you're writing them. Mm-hmm. And this the same was this the same uh, for the clarinet concerto also exists, and that is that Joe is an incredible player. Um, he was at the University of Michigan as a saxophone major, and then halfway through switched over to clarinet. Hmm. And then after after he graduated. Um, yeah, picked up the <laughs> picked up a clarinet position in the president's own marine band. He's wow. absolutely phenomenal. It's it's rare for me to hear a clarinetist who has absolutely no hint of a registral break. Yeah, anywhere, <laughs> and and the the timbre from the lowest note to the uppermost note he plays is just so um, solid. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I mean it's just all uniform. Yeah, um, and just he double tongues, and we he was. Um, we featured him in a piece that I, he commissioned of me um, a couple years ago at the university. We featured at the University of Oklahoma a couple of months ago. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just for him and piano. And um, and he, I, you know, we asked him how, man, you can double tongue. Our, our, he was at our university performing. Yeah. And our, our clarinet said, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we asked him, we asked him a couple months ago, so how is it that you, you can double tongue so well? And he says, yeah. well, I have a real slow single tongue, so I had to learn to double tongue. Huh, and I thought, oh my, because <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have a slow single tongue and I can't double tongue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really, I'm terrible at both. So, so he yeah. does things that most a lot of clarinets don't want to do or can't do. It's just very difficult to do on clarinet. And so yeah. I, there are some things here that I'm writing for him specifically. I think okay. the whole concerto will be written with him in mind. In fact, mm-hmm. yesterday I sent him a little finale mock-up of some multiple sonorities that I'm asking him to do. Uh-huh. And uh, he got right back to me and said, oh, I'll work these out over the next couple of days and let you know if it'll work or doesn't work. And so it's it's also wow. kind of nice because I get to work with him when yeah. I have questions about um, some some extended technique type of things. So, yeah, I, I end up interviewing my soloist quite a bit because I, yeah. I really want to make – as far as concerto, I really want to make the piece for that particular person. Mm-hmm. Same thing with band works that are commissioned. I really like to make them meaningful for that band director. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just feel like for both myself and the the institution or the, the ensemble or the director involved has something that is specially derived for them. Mm-hmm. And, and I've come across, I guess, kind of at my own surprise, I've come across Pulitzer Prize-winning composers who don't do that. They'll mm-hmm. they'll say, "Oh, I've got a commissioned work, and I've got this uh, chest over here that's mm-hmm. filled with sketches, and I'm yeah. I'm just going to pull one out and dust it off and put right. commissioned by." Yeah. And I thought, wow, that to me that seems like cheating. <laughs> right. Sure. Because if someone's commissioning you, then I don't know. For me, if it makes me feel like I need to do the research, I need to do it for them, mm-hmm. and that every single note is held accountable for. Uh, for that commission. So now if there's a, a band director or an orchestra director out there that would like to talk to you about a commission, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? There's a couple of good ways. Um, you can either uh, email me directly through the Cavilli Music website. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am through email. Um, you can you can get me through the uh, university that I teach at, which is uh, Cavelli at wou.edu. Mm-hmm. Uh, WOU for Western Oregon University, and if you just Google Cavelli Music, mm-hmm. it'll it'll come up. Um, uh, or they can just call me at Western Oregon. Um, I've got a phone number also for the Cavelli Music uh, publishing site. And I'll say this also about 
the commissioning uh, on the website i talk about how i know how difficult it is financially for groups to commit to commissioning because they think it's going to cost a lot of money and i'd like to talk to uh, directors and say well there's a lot of ways we can deal with that that aspect of it and i i tend not to you know if it's just a single group that's involved i tend not to charge very much for that mm-hmm. um just to make it uh, feasible for them to be able to commission a composer um we we do a lot with consortium commissioning and that really allows people to afford like for example the clarinet consortium i think we're going to five five hundred dollars uh, oh, wow. to get involved with that huh. Uh, the symphony was a, was at a thousand dollars, but that was a more mm-hmm. substantial work. Right. So it's we try. I, you know, again, I'm not trying to make a whole lot of money on this. I, for me, it's because when I go on sabbatical in order to write these pieces, it costs me to go on sabbatical. I don't get paid as much at the university, so right. I just try to make it up. Um, so the, the 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 issue for me is that I'm a composer who's not trying to make a living from my music beyond what I do as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So all I'm doing with my music then is what I can do to uh, just replace what I'm missing at the school, and then everything beyond that goes to charity. So, uh, well, so yeah, they. It sounds great. It sounds like you're kind of always thinking about, you know, the band director side of it in terms yeah. of finances. You know, and and the this financial situation, at least in in northern Indiana and throughout Indiana, is really dire. Right. Um, you know, so I I know that people still want to do this, and it's very nice of you to just say, well, let's you know, let's figure out a way to make this happen. Right. Right. Well, I think it's more important to to just make music. And I think we, the, you know, we didn't talk about this. We we're, you'd mentioned rentals to me earlier and, yeah. and things like that. But I, th- I think that the young composers coming out of the big schools, um, are now in a position where they see even self published composers, mm-hmm. big name composers in the band world, yeah, as well as just big publishing houses who right. rent, who rent their parts out right, and their scores out. And, I don't think that they understand that historically that's not a banned thing. It, mm-hmm. I think it has been in the orchestra world and certainly for musicals. Right. That's uh, just the way it's always worked with musicals. Yeah. Um, but for, for the band world, um, it's, I think it's very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the only thing that can really come from this, and I know I'm probably going to get a lot of emails now that I've given out my email. <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of emails from composers and publishers saying, yeah, but we have to make a living at it, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, okay, I understand that. Um, but I think that what's happening in the long run is that when we ask a band at the high school level, even at the college level, we have financial issues with renting or with, with purchasing music. But even at the middle school level, how does a middle, a very good middle school band, how are they able to afford renting a, a piece of music and be, be told that they can only perform at X amount of times mm-hmm. for this cost? And if they want to do it one more time, they have to pay yet another fee. Right. Yeah. And so I think we lose focus on what we're really trying to do with our students, which is to try and make them musicians. We're trying to we're trying to teach them about music. We're trying to get them involved with the collaborative process of music, and we're I think we're killing ourselves by <laughs> um, asking them to pay an exorbitant amount of money that in the end they can't do. Yeah, and, right. and won't do. So what's happening is that there all of a sudden there's a whole lot of music out there that's not available for them to perform simply mm-hmm. because. The, the finances won't allow them to. And so we're almost getting to this class system of who can play what music um, because of uh, of the rental setups and the performance 
licensing setups. Mm -hmm. So I, I like, you know, when I was growing up, my band director had all these filing cabinets alphabetized and you said, Hey, let's, you know, let's play Prague. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you go to Prague 68, you open it up, you pull it out and you play it, you know, and there's, there's a war horse, you know, you need to play that. I mean, could, could you imagine, um, renting, uh, the, any of the whole suites. Right. Uh, and so for me, I, I grew up looking at those physical manifestations of music in those filing cabinets. And so when I create my music, I also put, um, you know, the parts usually came in a little, what do I call a sleeve? Um, and so you had your score, you had your parts, and then that all came wrapped up in a, a nice sleeve. Uh, and so for my for my publications, I do that. I put everything yeah. into a sleeve, and I do it the old-fashioned way. You buy it for just a single price. You own it. You play it as many times. I'm a composer. Am I going to question that you want to play it five times, right. six yeah. times, or 20 times? Of course not. Play it as much as you want. Yeah. Um, so the goal for me is that we're focusing on making music rather than trying to make money. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, if I could encourage my listeners to go and and check out uh, uh, the the pieces that you have available, uh, you have a really a, a nice wide variety. Uh, when I look at the band stuff, um, all sorts of different things, and I'm sure that will be updated as you as you do more things and add to it. Uh, but even as it is, I think there are a lot of great options. Uh, and as I mentioned before, uh, the prices are very very reasonable, um, and there's a lot of information. I just it's really a great way to explore the piece. Right? Rather than just look through a, a retailer website where it's just got the title, um, and and it might say concert band and it might say the grade level, uh, but to, to get in it and you have you, you, good information about every piece and it's very very user friendly. Um, so uh, again, I'll remind everybody it's cavellimusic.com. I'll put a link to it on uh, the blog site so you get to it from there. Uh, to, and I I've, again I strongly encourage everyone to check out the music by Kevin Walchick. Uh, it's great music and and I have a feeling that. It that's just going to grow and sounds like you're really in tune with uh, uh, what we're the band directors are facing and, and what the students are need a need to develop as musicians so I, I on behalf of the band directors I, I thank you for that thank you Chad yeah thanks so much for being on and uh, will, you, will you be at uh, where would there be a place at Midwest do you have a uh, any sort of booth you hang out at or could if anyone wanted to meet you in person at Midwest is there a place that you like to hang out or even just to come to the the premiere concert would they see you there yeah, they'll see me there. Um, I don't have a booth. I actually asked our friend Dan Pham if I should rent a booth at, at, for Cavelli Music this upcoming December. He said, no, not this year, next year. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> well, not sure where I'm going to be, uh, but I'll be around. I'm going to be see, what I've learned in this conversation is that I need to talk to Dan more about yes, my business yeah. and career choices. I think so, too. He seems to have a beat on things. I'll give him a call. I, I, I call him my uh, – my agent and uh, <laughs> he's very good at, at marketing so well thank you so much for your time and and i'll say as any of my students would tell you you just went to the top of my friends list by uh mentioning empire strikes back which we all knew is, all right. is the, the greatest of all movies um and uh so uh right there you had me so that, right. seriously thank you so much kevin for being on and please uh, everyone who's listening check out uh, kevin's music and give him a call or drop him an email uh and and see if you can get a commission and and contribute to our repertoire thank you again kevin walchick thank you jim Thanks again to Kevin Walchick for stopping by and talking to us about uh, all sorts of great things. It was a wonderful interview, and it was a real pleasure to get to know Kevin. 
Don't forget to swing by the blog site for this podcast at chadnicholson.wordpress.com. I welcome your comments, or if you want to participate in the podcast by providing reviews or information about things going on in your neck of the woods, please drop me a line at windbands at gmail.com. Now, to play the show out, I'd like you to enjoy the Celebration Fanfare by Dr. Kevin Walchick, as conducted by the one and only, the great Mr. Ray Kramer. Remember, tone over tongue.
You're too kind. Oh, thank you. Really? <laughs> no, thank you. It's it's really it's just a podcast. So you, you really? Well, okay.